If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. As progressive nonprofits, and as any listener of the podcast, you will know that I pretty much only work with progressive nonprofits. As progressive nonprofits, it can sometimes be a bit challenging for us to make friends in the private sector. Sometimes those who are not as progressive as we are will get upset that we are not playing nice or that we're challenging the status quo. Though, It could be easy and honestly, sometimes even feel fantastic to tell them to go jump in a lake. Our guest today is someone who challenges that gut feeling and instead has built relationships to gain a bigger impact. As president of Mercy for Animals, Leah Garces is an expert on organizational leadership, building relationships, and of course, chicken welfare. As a leader in the animal protection movement for over 20 years, she oversaw international campaigns in 14 countries at the World Society for the Protection of Animals and launched Compassion in World Farming in the United States. In her recently published book, Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry, she highlights her history of making unlikely allies in the poultry industry that has led to huge progress for animal welfare and the rights of farmers. Hey, Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So I would love for us to start this conversation by hearing more about your story behind Grilled. Well, Dolph, I first sat down to write the book because I really wanted people to care about chickens more. And as I sat down to write that book and I reflected on my journey, I realized it was about more than that. It was about reaching across the table and sitting down with the unlikely ally to make progress. And I thought that was a really useful story to share with people and in the process, get people to think about the chicken that's on their plate. So what's it like when you sit down with that very unlikely ally? And and as you're thinking about in that particular situation, who was that ally? Well, 
The very first time I crossed enemy lines was terrifying, very terrifying. And that person was a chicken factory farmer named Craig Watts. And that's detailed in my book. He had been raising chickens for 22 years for a very big chicken company named Purdue. And after 22 years, he had become fed up. And through a mutual journalist, we were introduced to each other. And he invited me to come to his farm and see what was going on. Now, this was at a time when it was and still is really difficult to get footage from inside a chicken factory farm because it's essentially illegal to do so. It is illegal in the the state he lives in, North Carolina, unless you're invited. And you don't get invited as an animal activist to come and film what's going on inside a factory farm. So this was super scary for me to go, to be invited. Why did this farmer want me to be there? And why did I go? I literally gave the address to my husband and said, if I don't come back, look for me buried in the chicken litter. Because I thought, I don't know why he's inviting me. But he invited me. I went into his home. I sat down with him and we poured over piles of paper and he shared his story of hardship with me about how he was living on the brink of poverty, how he was an indentured servant because he had so much debt that he owed for the contract for the farm that he had built. And the only way to get out of that debt was to continue to raise chickens that he didn't want to do. So he was all but an indentured servant. And as I sat there, I really changed my mind about what I thought about him. And my discomfort and my fear turned into something else, which was, frankly, shame. And I felt very ashamed. I had never thought about the perspective of the farmer who was in this industry, who was doing this, frankly, horrible job that nobody really wants to do. And I had never once thought about his situation and could he be a potential ally. And with that, my whole framework and my whole theory of change transformed. So literally, it was one conversation in one chicken farmer's living room that transformed that framework. Well, it wasn't one conversation, but through it was the one farmer. I spent many months with this farmer building trust and walking the chicken houses with him as he gained my trust and I gained his trust. And he listened to me and I listened to him. And what we would do over the months that we filmed inside of his chicken barns was talk about what was happening. And he would point to a chicken and say, oh, that chicken's not healthy or happy. And I would agree. And we would talk about why and what could be done about it. And he made it clear to me that he didn't want to be in this industry, but had very, very little choice, almost as little choice as the chickens had. And it was through this, these months of going through the chicken houses with him, seeing him collect dead and dying birds that we came to trust each other and then made a decision neither one of us, I think, when we first met, intended to make, which was to release the footage. And we released that footage in December of 2015, and it went viral. It was in the New York Times. Uh, it was featured by Nicholas Kristof, which is one of the most popular columnists in the country. And from there, we it just spiraled into a much bigger, bigger conversation with the chicken industry, with other activists on how we change things, and in in general, how we work with opposing forces. And so it sounds like, I mean, it really did change 
your theory of really modified your theory of change and now you actively reach out to those opposing forces to those enemies of the cause if you will yes and i'm not the first person to think through this theory of change so whether it be gandhi or martin luther king their idea and my idea is that you hate the oppression not the oppressor and that we are fighting a system that hurts all of us factory farming hurts everyone because it hurts the planet, it hurts our future food supply. So every human being on this planet is negatively impacted by factory farming. And some of us more closely. So if you're a chicken, obviously the most closely. If you're a chicken farmer, you're a pretty close second. And it was through you know those conversations that I really adopted an existing theory of change and applied it, I think, to a new movement that it hadn't been applied to before very fully, it hadn't been fully embraced. As you said in the beginning, it's really fun to hate the oppressor. It's, it feels good because you're angry and I'm angry. I'm angry every day about the way animals are treated and the way our planet's being destroyed by our food system and that there is a very solvable problem we just need to adopt. And that makes me angry, but it doesn't help the system to just be angry. You have to really set that aside and be practical. So what are some of the lessons you learned about um, how to go about crossing the line and starting conversations and building relationships with people who you feel might be really adamantly opposed to what you're doing? Good question. One of the lessons is that you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable and that speaking to people who agree with us won't help us get to the solution. After all, the opposing force often holds the power to the solution. So in my case, chicken farmers, the chicken industry, they're in charge of the chickens. I'm not in charge of a single chicken. So if I want to make progress, I have to do it through them in some way or the other. And so embracing that, get comfortable with being uncomfortable is really critical. The second one was that you have to realize that the person you're talking to on the opposing side of the table is a human being who very likely has more in common with us than we care to realize. And I think as activists, we like to get really into our principles and we get stuck in those principles and we think there's no way this person can have anything in common with me, but it turns out they do. And I have some stories to share if we have time about that, but I have a lot of examples where I was so surprised when I would sit down with the chicken industry and find out we had a lot of common values and we believed in a lot of the same things and building from there was really, really important. The final lesson is we have to look for the win-win. So looking for solutions that help both sides and I could have gone in and thought with these factory farmers, I just want to put you out of business. I don't want you to be farmers. I don't care what happens to you. You're just not allowed to raise chickens. But instead, I started to think about how can I transform them into a different kind of farming, like mushrooms or hemp. And we've got a new project at Mercy for Animals that's all about that called Transformation, which is about taking those chicken farmers and taking those long barns because it guess what? Those long barns are really good for doing something else. Hemp and mushrooms and other things like hydroponic lettuce and basil and spearmint. And that's a win-win that you can tell the farmer, yeah, you can still pay the bills and stay on the land and live where your family have been for five generations. 
it just doesn't have to be through factory farming. And this is something I can get behind. He can get behind. She can get behind. And that's the win-win. So it's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, realizing your opposition is a human being with a lot in common with you. And the last is to look for a win-win. So as you've been doing more of this, is it primarily farmers reaching out to you like that initial farmer did? Or is it you now reaching out to farmers and initiating those conversations? Well, when I first started working with Craig, I had a ton of farmers come out of the woodwork who wanted to have conversations. However, most of them just wanted to talk. They just wanted to have someone listen. They weren't willing to go on the record. They were terrified of the repercussions of them speaking out against the industry. You have to think in total, these chicken factory farmers owe $5.2 billion right now. That's how serious the debt is. And just to explain how that happens, a farmer like Craig, when he was in his early 20s, he was looking for a way to stay on the land in rural North Carolina with no other job prospects in the poorest county in the state. Chicken industry comes to town and says, you can be your own man. And he thinks this is a dream come true. He signs the contract. He gets a loan out from the bank and builds for a quarter of a million dollars at the age of 20 something, which I can't even fathom doing with a master's degree. And he does this, he builds chicken warehouses and then the chicken flocks get dropped off and then collected. And every time that happens, he gets a paycheck that then goes towards his loan, like a mortgage. And that goes really well at first, but it's a factory farm after all it's 30,000 chickens stuffed wall to wall in a disease ridden ammonia laden air feces on the floor, darkened shed, disease happens, death happens, and you don't get paid for dead birds. So he starts to fall behind on those payments because less and less birds are making it to market. And he starts to fall behind on the payments and he realizes he's made a mistake, but he's now an indentured servant. He can't get out. He has to just keep raising chickens until he pays off that awful debt and times that by thousands of farmers up to $5.2 billion worth of debt. That's a huge burden on our rural economy, on rural communities. And it's a, it's a big focus of, it's become a big focus of how we solve this problem for me. And so a, a lot of farmers who were kind of reaching out to you and sharing that burden, the burden of debt, and really the burden of just feeling like an indentured servant, did they find out about you because Farmer Craig said, oh, you should talk to this person. I had a great conversation. Or how did they find out about you? Well, the story went viral. We had over 2 million people watch the video in 24 hours. So it was extremely well seen. And it went on to Jamie Oliver's, I mean, um, John Oliver's show. It was in the BBC. By the way, I think that's where I saw it was John oh, really? Oliver's show. Yeah. So it was very well shared. But my point about the debt is farmers wanted to talk about this, but they were too scared of retaliation and losing their contracts and then losing their land and going bankrupt. They wanted to talk about it, but then they were scared. So, you know, I've, I've met with some of these in these farmers, I would meet with them in person, they would tell me their stories. But some of them, I remember one incident where I went to visit some other farmers in North Carolina near Raleigh. And this one farmer had invited me. And when I got there, she said, Oh, they're all waiting for you. And I went, we, we, who's, who, who's they, who's they? And she said, oh, they're all here. 
And I went into her house and there was a dozen farmers and almost none of them were sitting as if they were ready to bolt if someone came down the street. But they shared their stories of debt and hardship and difficulty. Some of them had had terrible disease in their barns and they didn't know what to do about it. They weren't experts in disease and the industry didn't care. The industry they had told had this disease, they had diseases. Uh, and farmers I later worked with in West Virginia and again did a video and it was in the New York Times again from Pilgrim's Pride. They had a terrible disease in their barn called gangrenous dermatitis, which is gangrene. It's essentially a bacteria that eats the birds from the inside out, extremely contagious, gets in your barns, can't get it out. And these birds are already immunosuppressed because they're so stressed out and they're living in this dank dungeon-like environments. Well, they kept suffering deaths. 400 birds in a day would die. They would write to Pilgrim's Pride. Pilgrim's Pride was not responding. And so they decided to film in their own barns and they, I left them camcorders. And this was because Pilgrim's Pride had said they would fire anybody who let someone like me film inside the houses. So we got around that by saying, here are some camcorders. We're going to leave them with the farmers. And then the farmers took it upon themselves to film and show this disease and really tell the story, which was very powerful to have a farmer exposing the disease in their own houses saying, we can't do anything about this. This is the chicken that ends up all over plates in America. It's repulsive, it's unjust, and it's inhumane. And they were two farmers willing to speak up. However, one of those farmers went bankrupt. One of the two farmers went bankrupt. And that's the risk you take speaking up, is that you lose everything. And that's not a price everybody can pay. And so part of what I hear you saying is really these farmers are reaching across the divide as much as you are. And, and at some level, they... I mean, I hate to sound this way, and please, please, I'm not minimizing what you've done. Please know that. But they're almost risking more because if one of the other big chicken manufacturers says, hey, you know, we're not going to use you anymore as a contractor, now they just go belly up. No one else is going to pay them to ranch chickens. They're risking everything. And a lot of these farmers get into this because they want to stay on the land that's been passed down five generations. They want to raise their kids in these rural areas, because it's a way of life that they believe in. And chicken farming allows them to do that. Then if something goes wrong with that, they can lose everything, their income, their home, this land that's been passed down five generations. So yeah, in comparison, they're risking a million times more. All I'm risking is maybe getting sued. That's it. And so Follow-up question on that then, like, obviously people reach out to you. And as you said, a lot of people really are scared. And so they say, hey, I just want to talk. I, you know, you can't use footage or anything like that. How do you help people get to that next stage or that next point where they are willing essentially to risk everything to help get the word out and help message that? It's a lot of listening. It's a lot of one-on-one. -on -one. It's labor-intensive. But it's building trust like I did with Craig the first time. But obviously, that's not practical at scale, right? So we're now trying to think about the practicalities of scaling this conversation, which is why we launched, Mercy for Animals launched this new project called Transformation, in which we're trying to create a really powerful platform for farmers to engage with us, and then we connect them to investors and businesses that want to help them get out of factory farming. And this is our pilot year for the project. 
We have worked with one farmer to show that it's possible. So Mike Weaver of West Virginia, he was one of those two chicken farmers that did the expose with me who had the handheld camera. And he transformed his two chicken houses into a hemp farm and is doing great. And this is to show it's possible. And not only that, he's claiming he can make five times more money doing it this way, have less environmental impact and employ five times more people. And it's a huge boost for some of these rural economies. So what we want to do is create a replicable model that really can be repeated by all of these different farmers who are reaching out to us and have something to offer them to say, here's your way out. Here's your escape hatch from the indentured servitude you have found yourself in. I I love that. So really by going across the line, by crossing that great divide, and as you said, by listening to the individual and, and asking yourself, what do we really have in common? You were able to figure out, okay, what do we need to do so that we can scale this? So the more people will come to us and go, yes, I want to stop doing business this way. This is not the kind of farmer I want to be. Yeah. I think the question we had to ask ourselves is we had to go to the root of the root of the root of why are these farmers engaging in this kind of farming in the first place? It's not because they want to raise chickens in tortured environments. It's not pleasant for them to be in a dust-filled, ammonia-laden, darkened warehouse as their job. That's not fun for anyone. And we had to think, why are they engaging in this in the first place? So that was getting to that root reason, which was fifth-generation farmer, wants to live in a rural place, raise their family, that they have values that mean they want to stay there. How can we answer that calling they have with a different solution before we even get them to sign a contract? And that became where, and I think that's what, when you're solving hard problems, that's what you have to look for, is getting to the root of why did the problem evolve in the first place? And how can I come with a solution before you even get to the problem? You know, and part of what I love is, while legislation could potentially make that better, it would be really hard for you to get legislation through that would actually make that better. But by going farmer at a time and then scaling it, you really can create genuine change. Well, what we're finding very interestingly is there may be new pieces of legislation related to say hemp, for example, and subsidies related to hemp and kind of economic growth related to hemp where even the most conservative governments who would never pass a, and factory farming kind of bill are saying we would promote hemp because it's bringing an economic growth to this state. So Georgia is one of those where we live. And this is where you can find that strange commonality between opposing forces. Who would have thought growing hemp is a common space for the animal rights activist and a conservative pro-ag government? But it is. And there's a lot of legislation going on throughout the country right now to grow the hemp economy. And it turns out that hemp is grown very well in chicken farms. And this is a really great opportunity for us. And that's just one example that we found so far. But I feel like there's probably going to be a lot more. 
And part of what I love is, once again, you're really talking about crossing the line and crossing the divide because you're probably going to predominantly Republican legislators in, in agricultural states and saying, hey, hemp can be a real boon for you. Let's have a conversation about it. Exactly. And for me, creating a compassionate food system is not a progressive issue. It's an issue that matters to everyone. And it doesn't matter what side you fall on any political spectrum at all. This is caring about farmed animals and farmers and having a good food system that we can rely on in the years to come that treats everybody with compassion. That matters to everyone. It's not a political issue. It's not a progressive issue. It's just an issue that matters to everybody. And I got to ping off you there for a minute for several years before it was somewhat easier to get cruelty-free raised meat in stores. We used to get our meat from a CSA, Consumer Supported Agricultural Farm in Alabama. They would ship to the Atlanta area once a week, and so we put it in order, and that's how we got our meat. And I just have to say, it actually tastes better. Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of evidence around it being higher in omega-3s and 6s, and you are what you eat, you know. So I think the majority, so for chicken, for example, 99.9% of the chicken we eat in this country is from a factory farm. So you can't pretend that you're getting pasture-raised chicken when you go to a restaurant because it's ne- it almost never is with barring a f- very few farm-to-table restaurants. Nine billion chickens are raised and slaughtered in this country every year. And for our purposes, all of them are raised in factory farms, in darkened sheds, crowded, grown unnaturally fast at an unnaturally fast pace, so fast that they can't even walk, they fall over, they have heart attacks. This is our system. And we are not going to solve such a tremendously large system by just being angry and just having this angry opposition to it. We really have to look for practical solutions where we engage those that are responsible for those 9 billion individuals that are ending up on our plate. Mm -hmm. Well, Leah, I am so grateful you've come on to talk to us about working with folks who we might otherwise think of as enemies. I would encourage every listener to really think about who they think of as issue enemies of their organization and how they can reach across the aisle the same way you did. It's inspiring and it's important. And, And I also have to say in our current political climate where everything is so incredibly polarized, it's refreshing. It's very refreshing. Now, I needed to save just a few minutes to ask you the off the map question. Now, Leah, I understand that when you are at a border crossing from one country to another, you potentially have a pocket full of passports. (laughs) That's right. I have options. I have options, Dolph. (laughs) Yeah. so, So tell me the story behind this. Okay, so I have three passports, a U.S. passport, a British passport, and a Colombian passport. So my dad is Colombian and my mom is American. And when I was born, I was born in Spain, very confusingly. So at some point, I was also a Spanish citizen. And my parents gave me American citizenship to start with. So I didn't start with Colombian citizenship. Then when I was uh, finishing college, I decided to move to the U.K., And I lived there for 10 years working in animal protection. And I gained citizenship just through working and living and paying taxes there. And pre-Brexit, I thought this was brilliant because I could just live and work anywhere in the UK, in the EU. But that has been ruined as of recently. 
Then about four years ago, I decided to adopt my daughter. And uh, we decided to adopt from Colombia. And in order to adopt from Colombia and be on this heritage track, it was beneficial for me to acquire my Colombian passport at that stage. So then using my dad's citizenship, I got my Colombian passport and adopted my now six-year-old daughter. And here we are with three passports. That is really kind of cool. It also means when you're at a border, you can think, you can ask yourself, okay, let's see, I want to go to Cuba. Which passport should I use to do that? I do it all the time. I think strategically about the visa costs where I'm like, it used to be in Brazil, when I use my Colombian passport, it was free. If I use my American, I had to pay this hefty visa fee. When I go into England, I have I find the short line for like the EU citizen versus the American line. And when I come back into the US, I use the US passport because it's a short. So it's more like what's cheap and what's the shortest line when I go through borders now. <laughs> That's awesome. My husband and I have actually fantasized about having two or three passports. So maybe one day we will move in that direction. Awesome. It's really fun. Well, thank you again for joining us. I am just incredibly grateful that you've been able to spend some time today, and I really appreciate you being with us. Now, listeners, you can learn more about Leah's inspiring work, first of all, by getting her book, Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. We will link that so you can get it at Amazon, and also by connecting with her at mercyforanimals.org or look for Mercy for Animals on social media. And from her website and also from the social media and the book, you can get more tips about building relationships as you cross the divide and you start to look for allies across the aisle. And of course, you'll also learn more about Leah's work in the poultry industry. So don't forget, check out our website. Hey, Leah, thank you so much. Thank you. This is really a great conversation. So dear listener, are you standing in the grocery store right now? Maybe you're at the Publix or the Fries and you're looking at the chicken counter and you're like, oh, what chicken should I get? There's a free range chicken. There's this other chicken. They don't say what it is. Or should I just think about my CSA? Well, as you continue to ponder that, I suggest you pull out Google and see what you might be able to figure out and decide what is the right chicken for you to get. But obviously, you're not going to have had time to write down mercyforanimals.org, although it seems like a pretty simple URL to me. But you can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, and you can get the link to her book, Grilled, the link to mercyforanimals.org. Again, not that hard of a URL to remember, as well as the social media for Mercy for Animals. And you can get all of that at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Now, if you enjoyed today's show, and you enjoy hearing about nonprofit heroes like Leah who are doing unique and interesting work, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, give us a rating, or even write a review on whatever podcast platform you happen to be using on your phone. It helps us grow our podcast, reach more people, and spread the good news to leaders in the nonprofit sector. That is our show for the week, dear listener. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.